Second Chronicles here tonight, everybody. So make your way there with me to Second Chronicles, and uh, we're just continuing on. If you haven't been with us on a Wednesday night, um, we're just really cruising at a high altitude, uh, doing an overview of God's word, looking to just kind of take out various themes and key people, key events, and really just see how God's word can be applied to our lives and just see that, that um, you know, thread, that scarlet thread just weaving all the way through scripture that all points to, to Jesus. And so we're in Second Chronicles and what we're going to be doing here, because Second Chronicles really just sort of picks up from where we left off in First Chronicles, where it was primarily about, you know, the reign of David, and then uh, David getting things ready for his son Solomon, David desiring to build a temple, a house for the Lord, but David being unable to do so, he was not the man, but Solomon would be, so David's getting everything ready. So into Second Chronicles, we see Solomon again on the scene now, and and he just kind of takes up that mantle and he starts getting everything in place that David's already kind of done for him, his father, and now seeing the temple being built. And Second Chronicles is being written, just again as a bit of review, it's being written with a very different perspective than the other historical books are, the, the books of First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. There's a lot of overlap that you see in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, however, uh, Chronicles is being written with a very different perspective or, or thought behind it because this has been written at a very different time. It's been written when the captives are returning from Babylon. And it's as though God is saying, listen, I want to reestablish you guys in your history. I want you to see what kind of led to your downfall to begin with, but also what you need to do to ensure that doesn't happen again. And it's going to revolve around the temple. So 2 Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Chronicles really has much more of a, a spiritual theme to it, being centered around the, the temple where the worship of God is to be taking place, where the people are to be coming and seeking the Lord, learning of the Lord, being devoted to the Lord. And the minute that they get away from that, well, you know, judgment begins to set in and, and to get them back on track with the Lord. So... First and Second Chronicles, though it's reviewing their history, it's history to kind of get them on track in the new day that they're living in now as they come back from Babylon, as they seek to rebuild the temple that's been destroyed because of their sin, and to see this temple rebuilt where, again, this will become the center of their livelihood, of their lives, where this won't be just kind of for a season, but it's going to be an ongoing thing. So that's what, what First and Second Chronicles is really being written about. And so because of that, it's going to center around the southern kingdom primarily. We will see here how when we begin Second Chronicles, the, the kingdom's united, all right? But then it's going to be divided. But then all through the rest of Second Chronicles, it's going to focus primarily on the southern kingdom because that's the kingdom where the temple was, was at and where they were to be the ones really kind of Again, in close proximity to the temple, living and being centered around the temple, but how they always kind of had that cycle of falling into sin and folly and, and then having to seek the Lord, repenting and then coming back to the Lord. And so it's going to center around the southern kingdom primarily um, because, again, that's where God was establishing his promise, right? Where he would not, he would continue to have a descendant of David on the throne, and that's in the southern kingdom. So this is the the, the focus, again, just being written with a much more of a spiritual 
perspective to it. And so here's what we're going to be looking at as we go through Second Chronicles. And I'm going to be really tonight wanting to just focus primarily on some of the kings that we'll be seeing here. I'll get to that in a second. But here we're going to look at chapters 1 to 9. We see the the distinction of Solomon's kingdom. So the first nine chapters really deal with Solomon. And again, um, the building of the temple and the establishment of the temple and all the things that are going on there. Um, chapters 10 to 12 deal with the division of the separated kingdom. So this is where the kingdoms divide now. And then we end up with the southern kingdom represented as Judah. And then the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes in the north, and that's represented as Israel in, in scripture after the kingdoms are divided. Then Chapters 13 to 36, which is the bulk of the book, we'll see the decline of the southern kingdom. So in the decline of the southern kingdom, when the kingdom is divided, there were, okay, little trivia. Let me make sure you guys are awake and paying attention from previous messages. How many kings did the southern kingdom have in all their history? 20. Anybody know how many of those kings were good, godly kings? Eight. Oh man. All right. We got some students of the word here. That's good. Well done. You all passed. All of you get a pass for that, even if one of you, you're represented by the few there. So um, eight good and godly kings out of 20. Do the math because I don't want to, to, to let you know and see that's not a high percentage. Okay. That's not a high percentage, right? And so these kings were oftentimes pulling people away from the Lord and the the Lord would have a, a new king come on the scene that got them back on track. So we're going to tonight focus primarily on those eight kings, eight good and godly kings. And we're going to look primarily at their lives and, and some of the key things that they did that we can really learn from and see as examples for our lives. And so that's what we're really going to key in on tonight. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time in the first few chapters. There's a lot of great stuff in there, but uh, we did a study just, I mean, last year uh, through Second Chronicles on, on Sunday morning. And so we went through this a little bit more in depth. And so I encourage you, if there's stuff there that you want to really kind of study, go to our website and you can follow along in the, in the sermons there through Second Chronicles and, and see a little bit more stuff that went on in depth there. But just chapter one, verse one. Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. So here, like I said, Second Chronicles just picks up right where First Chronicles ends. Um, they were originally one book to begin with, all right? And so just kind of followed on in the, the story and the, the chronology there. And so um, Solomon comes on the scene and, and we notice here that he's, he's doing well. He's strengthened. Um, God's with him. And again, that idea you know, is more so that it's not God following Solomon along wherever Solomon goes, just Solomon, I just want to bless you, whatever you're doing, I want to be there. You know, it's not that Solomon's doing well because God's with him, it's because Solomon is with the Lord. Solomon is seeking God, looking to honor the Lord and what he's doing. And so it's God that is, you know, exalting him. All right, exaltation doesn't come from man, God's word says, it comes from the Lord, right? It's he that lifts up and it's he that'll also you know, tear down. Exaltation comes from the Lord. So God is establishing Solomon. And here's some things why God is establishing Solomon. Because remember, here in chapter one, we see that famous request that God gives, or, or kind of like the golden ticket that God gives to Solomon, right? Where in, in verse seven, God appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, ask, what shall I give you? 
So Solomon is confronted by God and God just says, Solomon, what do you need, bud? What do you want? Ask, I'm gonna give it to you. Could you imagine me putting that spot? Could you imagine the things that'd be rolling around in your brain? I know everybody would be going, I wanna give the spiritual answer, but man, my flesh is really saying, I would love this right here, right? Well, Solomon comes through and he says, in verse 10, now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people for who can judge this great people of yours? Solomon asked, why is he? He asked for wisdom. He said, God, I, I wanna do good in representing you, in leading your people. God, I wanna do what's right and good. Solomon didn't have a heart to serve himself, but to serve God's people. And there's a greater blessing that comes. Understand that there's a greater blessing that comes when we seek to be those that are serving God and serving his people. God will bless that and honor that. And Solomon is receiving that. And so God says, because he didn't ask for riches and fame and all that, man, I'm gonna give you all of that, man, as well as that wisdom. And Solomon was one of the, the wisest people uh, definitely that lived. And so... We begin to go through now and see the, the, the building of the temple. Chapters two to five go through how Solomon built the temple. It took seven years to build the temple and it was a thing to behold, all right? And all these things, again, were just pointing to Christ. And we'll look at that a little bit at the end here. But chapters six to seven detail the, the dedication of the temple. And again, Solomon just exercising great wisdom in, in all of these things here because you know, even there in his, in his prayer or, or dedication to the temple, he's, he's sitting there going, Lord, you know, how can we ever contain you in just a, a temple here? You're so much bigger than that, so much greater. God, you're, you're well beyond that. Solomon realizes that he can't box God in. He can't corner God in any way and say, well, we got a temple and this is how we know we can kind of contain you. Solomon knows, no, we, we cannot contain God. He's so much greater and bigger than, than all that. Well, in chapter seven, as Solomon is dedicating the temple and leading the people in prayer, um, God begins to lay out some real important truths now for the people to follow, all right? Um, knowing the hearts of men. God says, listen, I know what's gonna come, but I wanna give you guys some, some help and some truth to know that when you do step off the path of what I have for you, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to act. Here's how you need to respond. And when you do, I will bless you. It's one of the probably more well-known verses in 2 Chronicles, and it's found in chapter 7, verse 14, if you want to get over there with me. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. Because God lays out, listen, you know, there'll be times when, you're, when the people are going to experience adversity. And, and more accurately, that, that adversity is oftentimes going to be the means of God's judgment for their waywardness and disobedience. But God says, here's some things that they need to do. Here's some things they need to do. He says in verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God said that if his people recognize that they are under the chastening hand of the Lord, then they need to humble themselves and pray and seek him. And understand, humility is so important. It is really the key in us coming to God. Humility. Because it's our pride that so often gets in the way of us coming to God. 
It's our pride that, that restricts us from following in that obedience of the Lord. Whether it's pride that we have it all together and that we don't really need God, or it's pride that we're not really bad enough or, or you know, need God in that way that we don't have anything to confess. Whichever way it is, it's oftentimes pride that's at the root of us really seeking the Lord. But when we're faced with less than ideal circumstances in our lives, then we need to realize, I need to humble myself and see if I have a part to play in that. Is there something that I've done? Is it my sin that perhaps is causing this calamity around me? And so we need to come humbly and pray and seek his face is what God lays out for Solomon there. And as we do, we acknowledge that we're in need of him. God, we're saying, Lord, we need you. Lord, I'm in... I'm in trouble here, God, and I have nowhere else to turn but you, God. You're my only, you're not my last resort. You're my only option. See, praying is not just something that we need to do when we're in need. It's something we get to do just to spend time with God and to be in communion with him. It is acknowledging that we simply need him, not just need something from him. There's a big difference there. And God wants us to be those that are just in that place of just abiding in him, seeking him, not to get something from him, but just simply to say, Lord, we just need you. We just wanna be with you. And another key is for us to come with a repentant heart. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So there's a lot of people that love to come to God. They seek him, they wanna help, but they don't wanna turn. They don't wanna, they don't wanna have to leave the stuff that oftentimes is the contributing factor to the problems that they're experiencing. They want God just to kind of magically make everything better and yet still kind of be able to hold on or retain part of that. But repentance comes and it says, God, I recognize that I've gotten off track from your way and I need to turn from this way that I'm on and get back on track with what you have for me. Repentance is something that requires action. It's an action word here. It's a change of our attitude and a change of our direction. No true repentance occurs unless it results in, in physical change of direction in our lives. It begins with the mind seeing our rebellion against God, but it will lead us to a new course of action. And that's turning to God and in obedience to his word. Our New Testament equivalent would be found in, in James chapter four, verse seven and nine, where it says, therefore submit to God Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In other words, repent. Don't continue your way. Submit to God. Turn to him. Now what we see the Lord doing is he's giving this prescription that if the people will follow it, then the Lord is gonna bring this healing. He says, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. If they come humbly, praying and seeking his face and in repentance, then, then he's gonna hear from heaven. Wasn't just looking to the temple or, or being in church that caused God to respond to the right heart and attitude before him. Well, we'll be seen as we move through this book here that that was oftentimes the folly of the kings. And it was the folly of the kings that kind of you know, led the, the way of the nation. 
And yet if these kings had just repented and come humbly, God puts it for us right at the beginning to, to show us and, and to really lay it out in, their, in, in the beginning of their history. When you see these things coming, guys, repent. Turn to me, pray, seek my face. But yet, as we go through here, we'll see that that was oftentimes not the case, sadly. And they continue to spiral downward until that judgment had to reach a point where God had to do what he said he would do in plucking them out of their land and putting them as foreigners in a different land. Well, as we journey through some of these kings, we're gonna begin to see how they either followed this or didn't follow it, all right? Now, the end of chapter nine takes us to the end of Solomon. Solomon began his reign at 20 years of age. He reigned for 40 years. So in other words, he, he died at about the age of 60. Didn't live a very long life. And here's Solomon, a man that started out so well, wise man, doing what was right, honoring the Lord. But he began to have his heart pulled away from the Lord. He began to do things that God's word said not to do, multiplying horses and, and wealth and wives right? And it was his foreign wives that pulled his heart away and led him in idolatry. Solomon started well, but didn't finish so well. And it matters how you finish. That's what God's concerned. We don't have to worry about how do we begin. God says, this day is a new day. Make this day right. Serve me today. Don't worry about what your past might be dictating or saying. That's yesterday. Let's worry about today and let's continue on each day moving closer to God. Solomon didn't do that. But yet we find out at the end of his life, and, and Solomon, man, he, you read to the book of Ecclesiastes and, and Solomon, here's a guy that just like, he tried it all. He started off well in devotion to the Lord and he got to a place where he's just like, I'm gonna just live it up apart from the Lord. But as he writes to Ecclesiastes, what's the common word that you see in Ecclesiastes? Vanity. It's all vanity apart from the God. Everything under the sun, in a sense, meaning everything apart from God, it's just meaningless, empty, vanity. And here's how Solomon ends the book. Because he, thank, thanks to the Lord, came around. And, and it records for us in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Solomon says, Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Solomon understood, he knew. And I could have as many horses in the stable as I can fit. I can have as many wives in the stable. I mean, the, the house, not the, not the wives. Wives in the house, as many as I want. Just making sure you're all awake here can have as much wealth. And, and you read through the first few chapters, I think it's in chapter eight, chapter nine, where it said, man, he made like gold as, as plentiful as stones. Silver, it's just, it was just, they, there was so much wealth in Jerusalem. And under Solomon's reign, Jerusalem was at its zenith. It was at its pinnacle of, uh, of power and prominence. I mean, it did well, and he had a lot. But Solomon realized all of that, it's vanity, Here's what really matters, is to keep God's commandments. Fear the Lord, honor him. That's man's all. Man, that's a good word for us tonight, isn't it? Well, 
And remember, in, in Chronicles, we talked about this last week, we don't go through a lot of the, the um, failures and downfalls of people like David or Solomon. We don't, we don't read about a lot of those things that these guys did that was a mark of sin because God's not, God's saying, listen, it's a new day. As you're coming back from Babylon, it's a new day. We're not going to dwell on the mistakes of your fathers. This is a day that I want you now to have your heart linked to me and to serve me and to worship me. So the failures aren't brought up because God's saying, listen, it's a new day. Let's get back on track with what I have for you. So as we go through now chapter 10, we begin to see that Rehoboam comes onto the throne now. This is Solomon's son. Rehoboam's the new king now. And we read in chapter 10 that the people came and approached Rehoboam. Jeroboam was called back from, uh, by the people. Jeroboam had kind of put himself in, in hiding from Solomon. And uh, so the people called Jeroboam back now and was like, Jeroboam, will you go with us to, to Rehoboam? Because here's the deal. They're like, man, we've been under a pretty heavy you know, labor force under Solomon. And Solomon, he built up a lot of things, but he kind of taxed the people pretty heavily in their work and the time. And they're like, we need to tell Rehoboam he needs to lighten it up a little bit now. Don't do like what your father did. So they approached Rehoboam and Rehoboam's okay. Let me think about, come back on a, in three days and I'll give you an answer. He, he goes to his elders and the elders are like, Rehoboam, what they ask is fair. You know what? Lighten the load on them. Be gracious to them. Be kind, and they will serve you loyally. And Ray Boom, it says, rejected that. He's like, oh, man, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound like this is going to make me a real strong king. He rejected it. And then he turns on to his, his, the, the, his peers, people that he'd grown up with. And he's like, what do you guys think I should do? And they're all like, Oh man, no, you got to show them who's boss. You got to make things even more difficult than your father Solomon did and really whip them into submission. And so Rehoboam said, that sounds good to me. And what do we read at the, go down to verse 16 of chapter 10. Now, when all Israel saw the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, what share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So all Israel departed, uh, departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. So right here is a very defining point in God's word. Because this is right here where the kingdom that was unified divided. This is now where we have the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes in the north, known as Israel. And now the southern kingdom made up of Judah and Benjamin, referred to as Judah as the largest tribe. And so here now the nation is divided. In the north, 20 kings. How many kings were good godly kings? Big fat zero. That's right. None of them walked in the ways of the Lord, brought brought healthy kinds of reform or renewal. And so they were led away into captivity by the Assyrians earlier than Judah was because they didn't have any kings that, that kind of brought about a, 
a change of heart or a reform. And so they were led away by the Assyrians in 722 BC. For Judah, it'll happen in 586 BC by the Babylonians, but God extended their, their existence, their life, because of their faithfulness to the Lord. Even though it wasn't great, it was still better than what the northern kingdom had experienced. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna begin to look at and touch on now these kings that are in the south, and we're gonna focus on eight of the good and godly kings here and see what kinds of lessons we can learn from them. So first off, we, we got Rehoboam. That was the first king. He did a few good things, but didn't, again, finish well. Next up, we see um, Abijah wasn't a good king. And then in chapter 14, we hit Asa. Chapter 14 to 16 details the life of King Asa, who was their first kind of real good, solid king. Look at what it says in chapter 14, verse 1. We read there, So Abijah rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land was quiet for 10 years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Those are sweet words to hear. For he, he removed the altars of the foreign gods in the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah and the kingdom was quiet under him. And he built fortified cities in Judah for the land had rest. He had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. So with Asa's reign... There was action and instruction. He not only wanted to serve the Lord in the right way, but he commanded the nation to do the same. Now, Asa is certainly not immune from trials or difficulties. In fact, he has a million-man Ethiopian army that comes against him, and this army comes with 300 chariots. These are like, you know, tanks in this day, right? And so Asa's sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, we're hooped. This is not looking good for us. And Asa sees the odds, but here's the great thing, is that Asa looks to God, and he sees the difference maker that God is. He cries out to the Lord. Don't let what is sitting before you overwhelm you, because we serve a God who is greater than anything, to where we can say, as Paul would say, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Now, I love what Asa does and how he responds. Look at verse 11 there of chapter 14. Um, yeah, chapter, verse 11, chapter 14. And Asa cried out to the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Do you hear what Asa says? I love it. It is nothing for you to help, God. He's like, God, you don't even have to break a sweat when we've got a million-man army coming against us with 300 chariots. You don't have to look at that and go, oh, man, okay. I got to think this through a little bit here, guys. Give me a bit of time. God's not doing that. God's not breaking a sweat. Ace is going, Lord, this is, <laughs> this is nothing for you. And if it's nothing for you, then what do we have to fear or worry about in this? It is nothing. I want you to think about whatever struggle you might be encountering in life right now. Maybe there's an obstacle you're up against. Maybe there's a struggle that you're dealing with in your life. You know what you need to do? You need to look at that and say, Lord, 
it is nothing. Lord, this is nothing for you. What do I have to worry about this? Why do I have to fear? Because Lord, with you on my side, what can stand against me? This is nothing. And you see, God doesn't need the numbers. He doesn't need to try to rally now a a huge army. Asa says, Lord, this is nothing for you. You are able to save whether with many or or with those who have no power. Lord, you can put together a big army or you can do it with those that are just weak. This is nothing for you, God. See, whatever comes against us, let us remember the great God that we serve that nothing is too great for him. Let us move forward in his name, his power, and in his leading. Let's not give an opportunity for anything aside from the Lord to prevail. Now, moving on to chapter 15, verse one, continuing on in Asa's life, we read there, now the spirit of God came upon Azari, the son of Obed, or Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you, while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Those are important words for Asa to remember, important words for us to remember. The Lord is with you while you are with him. Like we've been seeing with David, with Solomon, and as I've mentioned already tonight and and last week, that when it says that God was with them, why is God with them? Because they're with God. The Lord is with you while you are with him are with him. When we're up against a a trial, a difficulty, and we think, God, where are you? God hasn't left us. God's with us. But in those times where you feel like God's left you, you ask yourself, Lord, I know you don't leave me because your word tells me that you're with me as long as I'm with you. Question is, have I walked away, God? Have I allowed things in that's kind of gotten in between you and me? Those are the questions we need to ask. That's the real key for us, living these lives for the Lord and walking in success and victory is that we are those that are continuing on in him and abiding in him. Well, next king that comes up, that's good king is Jehoshaphat. Chapter 17, verse six, look at what we read there. Chapter 17, verse six, and his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. What marks Jehoshaphat? He's a man that has a heart that delights in the Lord. What is your heart delighting in? What, What is your heart just take joy and pleasure in and just delight in? Do you delight in serving God, living for God, following his word? Are these the things that are are delighting your heart? Psalm 37, verse three to five says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Delight yourself in the Lord. Are you delighting in the Lord today? Is your heart just full of joy and delight in God? Because that's what he has for you. 
If it's not, I wonder if you're viewing God the way that he needs to be viewed, the way that he reveals himself in his word because he's a great, good, gracious, loving, heavenly father who sent his son Jesus to die for us, who's given us life in him. Man, there's nothing I'd rather delight in than what he's done for me and in who he is to me. Let us be delighting in him. Now, chapter 20, Jehoshaphat and Judah are confronted by a coalition army, Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Here's how we see Judah and Jehoshaphat deal with this. Five things come to mind. Position, patience, perspective, praise, and prospering. Position, look at verse 13 of chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 13 Here's what we read there. Now all Judah with their little ones, their wives and their children stood before the Lord. Got this great army coming against them. And they're all like, oh boy, what do we do? But they stood before the Lord. While the enemy is breathing down your neck, remind yourself who you have an audience with. Position yourself before the Lord because he's your help and fortress in those times. Secondly, we see this patience. Look at verse 14 and 15. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jahaziel, the son of uh, Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the man. Okay, verse 16 or 15. Yeah, verse 15. Let's just start, jump there. And he said, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. See, God's at work here. We may not always see it in real time, but trust him. Be patient. The Lord may bring you to the front lines of the battle, but only so you can get a closer glimpse of what God is going to do. And we need to be patient. We need to hold our ground. And we need to let the Lord fight our battles because I'll tell you, I, I like to fight my battles. I like to get in the mix. I like to try to make things happen. But being patient and letting God do it, it's a hard thing. But I know when I take a position where I say, God, you got to do the work. I can guarantee it'll, it'll always turn out better. Or I let God be the one that's fighting the battle rather than myself. Be patient. Just because the enemy is right there within view, don't fret. Be patient. Because God will fight your battle. And these people are right there and God says, I got this. And then they have a good perspective. Look at verse 16 to 17. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, do, not be, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them for the Lord is with you. So having the right perspective. These people need to hear the Lord's with you. We don't need to fear, fight, or take flight. Those are oftentimes our, our options. I'm going to freak out, I'm going to fight, or I'm going to take flight. But what are they told to do? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord's with you. Have that perspective. 
He's with you. He will secure the victory for you. And then I love the praise that we see in these guys. Verse 22. Or sorry, go to verse 20 of chapter 20. So they rose early in the morning, went out in the wilderness to Tekoa, and as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went up before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. Now when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord said, Ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. Here's Jehoshaphat. Hey, guys, we got the armies that are against us, but guess what? Let's just stop and sing. How many people would be wanting to do that? No way. But yet it's in this place where they worship and they praise the beauty of holiness. They just lift up the name of the Lord. And guess what? That's always going to drive the enemy back when we're worshiping the Lord because he hates to hear that. That's like nails down the chalkboard to Satan right there when he hears the worship of God going on. And he's not going to want to hang out much longer. And we see that as they begin to worship God, the enemy is defeated. Man, how we need to be those that are worshiping God. Living our lives where we're just allowing the praise of the Lord to go up. And it's going to be hard for the enemy to kind of have any kind of room to come in and, and, and rob you, to bring fear in you when you're worshiping the Lord. That just begins to be a, a defense. Put on the garment of praise. And then we see the result of all this, they prosper. Look at verse 25, when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away their spoil, because the Lord defeated them, just like he said, Stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. God defeated them. They didn't have to do anything. They just walk up. And they're saying, hey, all right. Look at all the goods. When they came to take away their spoil, they found among them an abundance of valuables on the dead bodies and precious jewelry, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days gathering the spoil because there was so much of it. How awesome is that? Not only does the Lord bring about this victory, but now he says, I'm gonna bless you guys. You know, I'm so thankful that just as God spared them, God spares us. But not only does he just spare us even from his wrath and judgment, he doesn't just spare us. He says, I want to bless you. And he shows grace to us. He extends that loving kindness towards us more than we ever deserve. We have an incredible gracious God that we get to live for and have life in. He doesn't just spare us and put us aside. He spares us and continues to bless us and heap just, just so many good things upon us. We're so blessed. So Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, they, we see that marked in these five words, position, patience, perspective, praise, and prospering. Well, before we get to the next good king, we have a trio of bad kings. Actually, two kings and a queen. Makes a great poker hand, but didn't do so well for the nation of Israel in their history here. So we have Jehoram, Ahaziah, and Athaliah. 
And they just brought a lot of wickedness into the nation. But then we come across, uh, uh, upon Joash, chapters 23 to 24. Joash. And here's what we read in chapter 24, verse 1. Joash was seven years old when he became king. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And Jehoiada took two wives for him, and he had sons and daughters. Now it happened after this that Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. So Joash, he saw what was out of line. The house of the Lord, the temple, and then he repairing. Under Jehoram, Ahaziah, and Athaliah, I mean, things just kind of went to pot. And the house of the Lord, the temple, was, was abused and neglected. And so Joash sees what needs to get done. And what does it say? He sets his heart upon repairing it, making it right. You know, whatever might get in the way of us worshiping God fully and completely, we need to be sure that we have those things straightened out and made right. Set your heart upon having those things Right, so there's nothing that's getting in the way of us living out a devoted life to the Lord in worship and praise. Joash sees the temple in disrepair and he sets his heart now upon repairing it. Jump down to verse 17. Verse 17 of chapter 24. We read there, now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king. And the king listened to them. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord and they testified against them, but they would not listen. Then the spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest who stood above the people and said to them, thus says God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you've forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. Understand something here. Joash had a good influencer in his life in Jehoiada, the priest. As long as Jehoiada was alive, Joash served the Lord. But now he allowed evil influencers into his life. They gave bad counsel. And Joash listened to them. And so they began to get led astray. But God was faithful and he raised up prophets, people speaking truth into the lies, seeking to bring them back around into repentance, just like 2 Chronicles 7, 14 and laid out. But these men didn't listen. And notice what one of the prophets says. Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? That's interesting. You know, there's a lot of people in the world that are trying to prosper. But doing so by not lining up with God's word, going about it their own way, transgressing, overriding what God has said. And the word is so clear. Why do you go against God's word so that you cannot prosper? There's no blessing. There's no life. There's, there, there's no prospering unless we line up with God's word. God's given us his word to say, listen, I want to bless you. I've been giving you the word so that you'd be restricted and, and be robbed of joy. I've given you my word so that you can prosper and be blessed. 
Listen to it. Follow it. Obey it. Because when you do, that's where you find the blessing. Well, because of this ongoing wishy-washiness now of the nation, God's not going to let them be. He says, you don't prosper if you don't obey. Now again, Joash, it's an interesting example here because here's a man that seemed like he did not have a personal, a solid personal relationship with the Lord. He's a man that started out well, but ended badly. It seems that Joash didn't have that genuine relationship with the Lord. His was secondhand. His walk with the Lord was connected to Jehoiada, the priest. As long as Jehoiada was alive, Joash served the Lord. It's a reminder for us that we cannot depend on others for our own walk with the Lord. It's something that needs to be personal and developed by an active faith. And it's an active faith in Jesus. Like we've often said, God has no grandkids. It's not based upon your parents and where they've gone to church or how you've been brought up. The question is, do you have an active, genuine faith and relationship with Jesus? That's the key. Joash is a warning to all who profess to do God's will but really don't have the love of God in their hearts. If your faith is propped up by someone else, what do you do when that prop is gone? And Joash is a living example of that when the prop was gone, when Jehoiada was gone, he turned because his heart wasn't linked to the Lord. Well, the next king, Amaziah, chapter 25, it says in verse one, Chapter 25, Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiada of Jerusalem and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord but not with a loyal heart. Here's a quick summary of Amaziah's life. He had a decent reign, 29 years, it's pretty good but for the most part, he did what was right in God's eyes but there's the dreaded but, right? You know when there's a but like that, it usually doesn't, follow in a good thought, right? It's not usually good stuff that, that's coming after it. Here's the situation with Amaziah. His heart was not loyal. That word has been translated as wholeheartedly, true, devoted, perfect. It's the Hebrew word shalem, which is connected to the word shalom, meaning peace. In other words, the heart that is fully devoted to the Lord is a heart that is truly enjoying a peaceable life. A life that's content and satisfied. But Amaziah, he's going to run into some problems because of a divided heart. He's going to experience a lack of peace at times because his heart is not loyal or devoted to the Lord. Now, Amaziah is doing good things. He, he's doing some right things, but he's not doing them with the right attitude, you see. He's carrying out some good action, but doing so with a wrong attitude. And God is always more concerned with the why we're doing things and who we're doing things for than, than what we're doing. God's not so concerned with what you're doing, but more so why you're doing it, who you're doing it for. When we have the right motives and the right focus, well, the right actions will follow. Uzziah chapter 26. Great story. And lessons to be learned through 
Uzziah's life. I was at a, was at a pastor's gathering this afternoon, Langley Pastors, and one of the pastors nearby here was just leading us in devotion. He says, you know what? We're gonna, I'm gonna share some from Second Chronicles, not a place that you'd probably typically be teaching from. And he goes, unless, you know, Calvary Chapel, teaching verse by verse, right on. So he had a little shout out for Calvary Chapel. So yes, well done, church, because we've gone through this a few times here. But Uzziah's life here, uh, some great lessons and examples. Now, it says in verse three of chapter 26, that Uzziah was 16 years old when he became a king. And he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jecolia of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. That's a real key for anyone. If you want to know what it takes to prosper, to be blessed, seek the Lord. And it says as long as Uzziah did that, God made him prosper. But that also implies that it seems he didn't always do that. As long as Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him prosper. So we'll see that that wasn't exactly the case in Uzziah's life in the sense that he didn't always seek the Lord. But how important it is that we never get to a place in our lives where we feel like we don't need to seek the Lord. Where we are constantly living in that dependency and trust in God. And to recognize that without him, man, we've got nothing. Now, we'll find out that Uzziah began to slip away from that. That dependency and reliance upon God. We'll get to that in a little bit. But let's first of all see how he benefited and prospered because Uzziah had a, had a great reign, 52 years. That's like, man, think about that. Like over half a century he reigned. That's a lengthy reign. Usually that was an indication that he was doing something well. And he did. He did a lot of great things. But again, his was a life that sadly didn't continue on in that. So listen, the, the fame of, of Uzziah just spread all around. Here's some things that he did. He was a conqueror. Verses six to eight, defeated enemies. He was a builder, verse nine to 10. He, he just built up a lot of great things. He was, a, he was a, um, a planter. He was an equipper. He was an innovator, making some great, you know, kind of warfare sort of weapons and just did some really amazing things. Like I said, fame of Uzziah began to spread around. He became exceedingly strong, but things changed. Look at verse 15 of Chapter 26. The end of verse 15, here's what it says. Well, actually, just let's read verse 15, all of it. Here's this innovation of Uzziah. So he made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones, kind of like a catapult. How cool, right? So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. You would think it would say he was marvelously helped when he became strong. That's not what it says though. He was marvelously helped till, until he became strong. See, Uzziah began to get confident and reliant on 
his strength rather than the Lord's. And it began to lead him astray. Look at verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. You see, Uzziah began to see all that he was accomplishing as though he had something to do with it. Look at how great I'm doing. Look at how marvelous and wonderful I am. Look at how strong I am. He began to get confident in himself. And in Uzziah's strength, his weakness became manifested. That's an interesting kind of paradox there. Because it's that way for us oftentimes, that in the place that we feel most strong can oftentimes become the greatest weakness in our life because we become self-reliant. We become confident. We begin to lose those blind spots to where suddenly what we thought we were strong in becomes the very place that we fall in. And it was so with Uzziah. He was strong. He was mighty. He was accomplishing great things. But it went to his head and his heart was lifted up. In other words, he became prideful. He became a man of great pride in this. There was a story of a, a young man that was very prideful and his friend wanted to meet with him and kind of lay it out to him that his pride was just really getting the better of him. And this guy just thought he was all that, you know. So he's gonna meet up at a restaurant and this prideful man comes walking in. There's two girls sitting at a table right by the entrance and he walks by them and sees them kind of looking them over and he hears them say nine and he just got all puffed up again he watched his friend he said hey see those two beautiful girls over there they just rated me they just gave me a nine his friend looked at him and said I'm sorry to tell you but they're speaking German <laughs> means no nine German no See, the Bible has a lot to say about pride, doesn't it? Proverbs 29, 23, just one case. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. See, God desires humility. It goes right back to where we started in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. My people, call my name, will humble themselves. And here we see a king now that was doing so well, and yet, became confident in self, became prideful. God desires humility in those that come to him and live in him. Humility is having the right self-appraisal and having the right God appraisal. So this pride led Uzziah to take on greater responsibility than he was really permitted to take. He goes to the temple and he starts to serve as a priest. He starts to do things thinking that, hey, I can do this. Nobody's gonna tell me I can't do that. Why well, he's just a priest and I'm better than any priest here. I can do this. And he took it upon himself to take a position that he wasn't qualified for. It says that he entered the temple where the altar of incense was. That's right before the Holy of Holies. That was not his place. Only the priests were permitted to be in the temple. See, Uzziah was getting in the way of a wonderful picture here because there would only be one king priest that would emerge, and that would be Jesus Christ. 
who comes our great king and our high priest, who would serve both offices for us. Only one would do that. And Uzziah was getting in the way of this incredible picture that would be emerging. Uzziah was, in a sense, blocking out Jesus. That's what pride will do. It causes us to grab the glory that belongs to only one, and that's the Lord. It's interesting that Uzziah is mentioned in another place in the Bible in an interesting way, book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter six, we heard a great message on that a couple Sundays ago by Pastor John. And it says in Isaiah six, verse one to three, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings with two. He covered his face with two. He covered his feet and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It seems that Uzziah, while he was living, the focus was on him. But when he died, guess what? Things changed. It was the Lord who was now seen more clearly. See, if we're gonna see Jesus exalted in our lives, then we need to let those things die that we've put confidence in, that we put hope in, that we put dependence on or that we're strengthened by if they're not based in the Lord. If we wanna see Jesus seen in our lives and exalted in our lives, may we be those that are dying to self. Saying, God, I want you to reign supreme. I want you established on the throne of my heart and no one else. I want you to be leading my life here. When we're willing to die to those things and say, Jesus, you have the prominence and the preeminence in my life, then we'll see Jesus high and lifted up in our lives. And he will be the one that receives the glory that he deserves. So Uzziah had a good beginning, but again, sadly overshadowed by the end of his life. Because of his pride and doing what was not permitted by him to do, God had to strike him with leprosy, where he lived in isolation until he died. Chapter 26, verse 21 tells us that. Listen, here's what pride does. It clouds your vision. It moves you into places you should not be and eventually will lead you away from the Lord. That's exactly what happened in Uzziah's life. Die to those things that will keep Jesus from being the focus. Andrew Murray said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Well, continuing on here. Everybody still doing all right? How, I don't know how many kings were down, but I don't think we've got that many more to go. We're, we're getting there, okay? So stay with me. How are we doing for time here? Where are we at? Hey, okay, wow. All right. Jotham is next here. Chapter 27, verse 1. Jotham was 25 years old. When he became king, he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. I like that. That's kind of funny, right? He did everything. Well, he did the good stuff that Uzziah did, but not the bad stuff. He didn't enter the temple of the Lord. That's, I mean, that's crazy, right? He didn't do that. But it says still the people acted corruptly. Now, this is one of the few kings that we don't read anything negative about. The fact that the people still acted corruptly isn't on Jotham. It's not saying he did it, but yeah, the people did. There's nothing negative written about Jotham here, which is very unusual. 
So he continued on in similar things that his dad did, minus the pride stuff. He built things up. He secured peace among his enemies. And this is the key. Chapter 27, verse 6. So Jotham became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. You know, that word prepared is elsewhere translated as established or fixed or set. In other words, Jotham was intentional in putting things in place that would ensure success. He was, he was set on, fixed on doing things the, Lord way, the Lord's way. He prepared his ways before the Lord is God. That they were in line with God's ways. This is how he established himself and so he prospered. I pray that we live like that. Doing all that we can to ensure that we live these lives in a manner that line up with God's word and that bring glory to him. Because when we do, we too, just like Jotham, are going to be established and mighty. Hezekiah, the next king, Second Chronicles 29. Four chapters devoted to Hezekiah. Hezekiah, great king. Hezekiah took over after his father Ahaz. And Ahaz was a man that didn't follow the Lord and he left things a mess. But when Hezekiah resumes the throne, he does things according to his father David. Look at chapter 29, verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. That's always the standard, going right to David, right? It's a great thing when you see a king didn't do like what his, his previous initial father did, but according to his father David. And just like us, I mean, that's always the standard for us. Don't compare yourself to other people. Don't look at other people and go, man, I'm so much holier than that person. I must be doing good. Because you can always find somebody you're doing better than, but you'll always find somebody you're doing worse than too. Our, our standard has to be Jesus. I always want to say, Lord, I want to be living up to what you've called me to and to, and to who you are. I want, to be, I want to be representing you, Lord. So this king is marked for the standard in that day, which was as David had done. So Hezekiah comes, he cleanses the temple, he restores worship of the temple. The Passover's kept. There's a lot of great things going on in Judah right now under Hezekiah's reign. Like I said, four chapters are devoted to the life of Hezekiah. There's a lot going on. But even in the midst of his faithfulness and, and godly direction, he's not immune from adversity and trial. And this is interesting because he's doing everything right. And you'd think, <laughs> if I'm doing everything right, I'm going to get a pass on trials and adversity. If I just do what's right, God's gonna keep me comfortable. No, that's not the case, is it? Because here we see now, under Hezekiah's reign, that it's the Assyrians under the rulership of Sennacherib that is coming against them, causing problems. And so as they're coming and breathing threats down upon them, here's how Hezekiah responds. Look at chapter 32 now, we'll jump over. Chapter 32, verse seven. Here's how Hezekiah responds. He says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid nor dismayed before the king of Assyria, nor before all the multitude that is with them, for there are more with us than with him. With him, that's ah, an arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Man, I like that. Aren't those great words of encouragement? And how we need to remind ourselves of those often. Because we can look at what the enemy's doing sometimes and think, oh man, 
How am I going to get past that? How am I going to get around that? But we have to realize no matter how big the enemy might seem, no matter how, how great or numerous he might look, the enemy is always outnumbered if we have God on our side. Hezekiah says, there are more with us than there are with him. And I'm sure they're all looking to it and they count, right? They're like, Hezekiah, I don't know, man. I don't think you crunched the numbers well enough here because I think there's more of them. Hezekiah's going, you don't get it. That's not my point. Because there can be one of us and 185,000 of them. And I'll still say the same thing. There's more with us than there's with them. Why? Because with God on our side, we're always in the majority. God is still greater than whatever the enemy can throw his way. And if we're standing in the Lord, we don't have to fear how great, how big, how threatening the enemy might look. Because we can say, man, I got the odds stacked in my favor because I got the Lord on my side. And Hezekiah is reminding the people of that very thing. And so sure enough, here's the army now, the Assyrians, and they just come and they camp out all around Jerusalem, 185,000 of them. And guess what? Well, Judah goes to bed that night. They're all in Jerusalem. They're waking up the next morning expecting to see these people out there thinking, has anybody gotten through? Have they breached the wall at all? They wake up and they see 185,000 people dead all around Jerusalem. Because God sent an angel of the Lord out that night and took them all out. And guess what Judah had to do? Nothing. Well, they had to go out and clean up all the dead bodies, but they didn't have to contribute to this fight or to that victory. It was found in the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. How we need to have confidence in what God is able to do, no matter what you're up against. We can say, man, we're still on the winning side, the majority side, but we have the Lord on our side. Josiah, chapter 30, last, last king, we're getting, we made it, last king, Josiah. And then we'll recap the whole book for another hour after that, so don't, it's all, it's all good. No, I'm just kidding. Josiah, he's the last king, last good godly king, and he was one of the best of the kings. Chapter 34, verse one, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So Josiah, even at a young age, kept, kept just walking down the straight and narrow, it didn't turn to the left or to the right. Just like, this is the path, man. This is the path of blessing, following the Lord. I'm not gonna veer off that, why would I? going to keep tracking with God and what he has. And so he brings in just again this great reform and renewal. They're cleaning house. And one day when they're out actually cleaning the temple, the book of the law is discovered and it's brought to Josiah. And he begins to read through it and he begins to see as he's looking through it, perhaps going through, you know, Deuteronomy 27, 28, looking at the blessings, the cursings that are, are pronounced upon. And he's realizing how far they've come. And the very things that they've done, breaking those things, Josiah just tears his garments. He's, he's cut to the heart over this. And he says, men, we've got to get on track. We've got to get ourselves in line with God's word. And so in verse 31 of chapter 34, 
Here's what we read. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. So Josiah is a man that held to God's word. He brought about that great renewal of worship and devotion in Judah. However, it didn't seem to stick with the majority of the people because after Josiah, well, we have four more kings. None of them did what was right. Four last kings of Judah that did wickedly and that seemed to plunge the nation into this judgment that God was just looking to hold off and hold off until it got to a point where God knew the only remedy was to bring them into judgment and captivity to weed out this idolatry in them. But God gave them every chance to avoid this. Look at chapter 36, verse 15. Chapter 36, verse 15. Understand God's heart because God wasn't, he's not a, a God that just flies off the handle. Man, he, he's given them opportunity after opportunity to repent. He lays it out right there in chapter seven. Here's what you do, guys, when you know that you're up against it. You need to turn to me, seek my face, repent. And he kept calling out to them to do so. Look at verse 15. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his leaders. All these he took to Babylon, verse 19. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, many of the, the leaders uh, in Jerusalem during Jeremiah's ministry, they were promoting this false hope. They were basically saying, listen, we've got the temple. God will never allow anything to happen to his temple. We're safe. No enemy can come against us. And they promote this false hope. But the people failed to see that God wasn't interested in preserving a place. He was interested in purifying a people. And he'd have no problem destroying Jerusalem or the temple if it meant leading his people into repentance. So notice God is behind this invasion and this eventual defeat of Jerusalem because it says, therefore, he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans. God did that. The Babylonians were God's instrument of judgment to wake up his people for a prescribed time where he had bring them in to the land for the 70 years because of the way that they didn't uphold the Sabbath and really uh, how they didn't uphold God's word. 588 BC, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had laid siege around Jerusalem. They held it at bay for two and a half years. And in 586 BC, they broke through. Conditions got so bad, so rough. And God 
how to lead them away in that judgment. And our ending here in the book is a sad one. But God adds this bit now, the last couple verses about Cyrus that skips ahead. And it's the way that the book of Ezra begins. And so I'm gonna leave that until next week when we get into the book of Ezra, which again reminds us or, or seems to identify Ezra as the writer of Chronicles. But for the Jew, having no temple, it's a huge missing piece. They're without it today. And when they came back after captivity, they rebuilt the temple. They had it in Jesus' day, but you know the story, it got destroyed again. And they're waiting there. It's a huge missing piece there. But Jesus came to do for us what the temple was limited in. Matthew 12, 6 says, Jesus says, yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. As we finish John 2 this Sunday, we're gonna hear Jesus say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews says, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Revelation 21, 22 says, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What might be missing with a temple is ultimately fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ who came and dwelt among us to reveal God to us, but also to bring us into a deeper and more intimate fellowship with God, greater than what was ever experienced at the temple. Think about that. And so though we see a sad story here, we see what God had in mind all along. In seeking to preserve a people that would allow the Messiah to come through and bring people into a greater connection with God than they could ever have through just a outward manifestation of religion and going to the temple, sacrifices, all these things. Jesus came to fulfill all of that. He's the greater picture of all those things in the temple and the sacrifices. He's the greater connection to God, to us. He is God. And as we experience life in him, then we enjoy this intimate, sweet fellowship with God. May we learn the lessons from these kings because there's a lot of them there for us. And I hope you're taking notes because, man, uh, and I hope you're highlighting, because there's just little verses, just one or two verses with each of these kings that just kind of like, boom, it just jumps out and hits you of just things that are so important to follow and apply to go, that's the key. That's something I need to be doing in my life to ensure blessing and life in the Lord. So may we do just that. Well, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for our time together tonight and just so exciting, God, to look at a book like Second Chronicles that would oftentimes just be overlooked, neglected, and yet to see such nuggets of wisdom and truth and examples from these kings that we can glean from and apply to our lives. And I pray that, Lord, there's a couple things that just stands out to us that says, Lord, I want to follow that. I want to apply that. I want to live that out, Lord. Help us to do that because, God, you have nothing but the best in store for us. And so often, it's not because we're not missing out because you've walked away, but more so because we are. As long as we're with you, God, you're gonna be with us and we experience blessing because of that. So may we be quick to follow you, Lord, and put these things into practice now. We ask in your name, amen.